I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm that other guy, Sam Scott. Right? <laughs> and we love to watch. We love to watch Caligari and the real somnambulist. Looking for one true thing to know to see. I've been sleepwalking Pete. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Hey, Sam. Already off to a, a rollicking start. Sam is like our prodigal son because he was he was going to join us for the fly back in October. Um, and he's like, you know what? Uh, I'm really sick. Also, I just don't know if your show's going anywhere. Talk to me when you hit 50 episodes. <laughs> and here he is on the 50th episode where we're going to finish off Silent Horror Month talking about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. That's a slightly classier uh, entry, but uh, I think no less interesting. Uh, Sam, we're, ha- we're happy that you decided to uh, actually come on. <laughs> Look who decided to show up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fancy meeting you here, Sam. <laughs> Yeah, we're happy to have you. Uh, we're going to get into a game here to celebrate our 50th, uh, 50th anniversary, or not 50th anniversary. 50th anniversary. <laughs> our 50th episode. Well, ne- next week is our one-year anniversary, so it, they're really close together. It's very oh. confusing. So, But, uh, but Sam, uh, we want to make sure our audience gets to know you. I know at least probably half of them know you very well. But if you could let us know three things about yourself. Three things about me. Well, I got an awesome dog. Tell us about this dog. Oh, his name is Pogo. He is 11 years old and about 1,100 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) He's 1,100 pounds? No, no. You got a Clifford. I'm just letting you know. (laughs) He used to be pretty fat, but he's been going on walks, so he's doing okay now. But still pretty huge, just more muscle now. (laughs) What's the Atkins version for a dog? Is it, like, probably the same as for people? (laughs) Just don't eat it like a monster? (laughs) No bread for you. (laughs) Yeah. No, just keep on eating that dog food and then maybe exercise some of it out. Do you tell him to think thin? Does that come up in your conversations? Do you tell them that nothing tastes better than being thin? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> nothing tastes better than being thin. I hope you're not motivating your friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, yeah. What, what's number two, Sam? Number two is that, and I'm going to say this just so y'all can hassle me to make sure I actually do it, that the Scorsese experience is coming back on the Solute. It's one of my favorite columns there. Oh, wow. Thanks. You've not done silence yet, right? I'm only up to casino now, so it's going to be a little while. You still got your Kundans. You still got your bringing out the dads. Gangs of New York. You still got your five minutes where you try to remember whether Hugo was directed by Steven Spielberg or Martin (laughs) Scorsese. (laughs) I'll have a column that's just about Spielberg movies on the Salute that's like, the love for classic film is, is just pouring out of this. Oh, fuck. Scorsese did this. Never. (laughs) Still works. Sam takes over midway through the article. (laughs) Just like get one of those giant hooks and drag him off stage. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's written in real time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Can you explain to uh, listeners that might not know what the Salute is? Yeah, so that is a website that a bunch of commenters on the old, the Dissolve website put together and that uh, ended up outlasting the dissolve because nobody has to pay us to do it well does anyone want to pay you (laughs) that is an excellent question (laughs) (laughs) on principle they always turn down checks oh obviously (laughs) 
It's about the art, man. Unlike us, who we, we get paid the big bucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just to make sure they get it right and typing it in, it's it's the-solute.com. So the-s-o-l-u-t-e. That's where you can find uh, Sam Scott's column. Oh, the commenter Wallflower has some really great columns over there. Our own Michael Garnieri. There's some really, really great writing uh, over on the Salute that, uh, yeah. Bad movies by great cinematographers. That's still going on. Oh, by the narrator. Yep. Yeah, we'll definitely we'll definitely link to it in the in the show. But yeah, I had been once we transitioned over. I didn't really realize who Sam was uh, until he linked to one of those burgundy suit articles, uh, and I was like, holy shit. You're the guy I've been reading his articles for a long time. <laughs> it's a me. That was a weird thing after in the post dissolve uh, time where uh, it was reconnecting people through to people through multiple sources like the Salute and uh, on Twitter and on Facebook and like reconnecting and connecting for the first time and like being like, holy shit, this person's really fucking funny. And then three weeks later, I'd be like, oh, I already thought this person was funny just when they <laughs> were, I don't know, an anime character. <laughs> Well, and for me, it was really funny, too, because uh, I was a daily reader of the Dissolve, but because Disgust didn't work at, uh, at my job, I never commented. I'd, I'd comment on the AV Club back in the day. But the second I saw the Facebook group, I ended up joining. Uh, so there was, like, a good, like, three weeks where it was like, um, oh, Raul Gonzo liked my comment. I've been reading his stuff for a long time. Uh, and now he, now he won't leave me alone. <laughs> He's a legend, man. <laughs> the dynamic has changed. No. Haunted by the ghost of Ralph Gonzo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now he texts me daily movie updates. <laughs> that and the stalking. Yeah, the stalking, <laughs> the changing his appearance to look like me. It's all very weird. I think he's trying to, trying to talented Rip, Mr. Ripley me. <laughs> it was weird how he tried to t- change your will to will your face to him. <laughs> I don't like that at all. Ironically, that was in there before he got to it. <laughs> he just really, you're like, this baby's got to travel. He wrote some good Godzilla comments. I don't know who he is, but he's getting my face. <laughs> <laughs> One night, you were staring at the the lineup of empty drinks after us, one of our recording sessions, and you were like, this, uh, this liver's not going to hold out very, very much longer. I better find a young champ to take up this mantle. <laughs> yep, that's what I did. <laughs> Number uh, 50. Uh, <laughs> Sam, I think you got one more thing. Shit, that I could get out of it. Um, <laughs> We're sticklers. We keep track. Everyone owes a debt. Yeah. Anybody anybody that's been to a, uh, a freshman year icebreaker can uh, tout how, much, how terrible these things are. And we actually force people to go through them on the air. <laughs> and then we edit out like 80% of them. <laughs> Right. Just it's a domination thing, really. I sort of like edited out eighty percent of my freshman year as I went <laughs> <laughs> via double bottles of wine. Pro tip: if you drink wine from the bottle, always make sure it's not sparkling first. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Learn that number three. Way. It's gonna ruin your night. <laughs> I think that counts. That can't be a third thing. I said it counts. It counts. Okay, I'll you're take a learn. You're a learned man. No, Peppy. It's pronounced learn. <laughs> <laughs> wow, he is fancy. He's a, he's a fancy man. He's just uh, dropping E's. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so thank you so much, Sam. We found out a little bit more about you. Um, and now for our fiftieth fiftieth uh, episode game, uh, you are going to guess a little bit more about Peter and myself. So we're not going to do anything about the movie. This is, you know what, we've earned this after 50 <laughs> long, 
grueling, difficult episodes. Uh, you know, with a with a co-host you don't get along with. <laughs> um, you know, it's been tough, but we made it through, powered through. Uh, so I'm gonna Sam. I'm gonna say ten things, uh, not all at once. Uh, separated by spaces and guesses. <laughs> um, and, and you need to guess. These are all true things. They're very quick. Whether they are things that uh, occurred in Peter's life or or my life. We've all – both of us have been talking now for years. Uh, these are nothing that we've ever revealed on the show or probably in our Facebook pages or anything. But based on what you know about us, you need to guess. Is this a Peter thing? Or an Aaron thing. All right. If you have any questions about, huh, what what happened here, uh, we'll be here to answer those for you. All right. Shoot. Number one, once dressed as Angel from WB's Angel for Halloween. That sounds like an Aaron. That's a Peter. <laughs> I was going to say, Peter looks more like him, but Aaron seems more likely to dress up, so... <laughs> Are you saying I got that Boreanis magic? <laughs> uh, whatever that is, yes. Unless it's a bad thing, then no. For some reason, as oh, so as a kid, my mom and I used to watch Buffy, and then we used to watch Angel together. I was obsessed with it, completely without self-consciousness. And it was like one of the first early times in my life where I was like really into horror shit. And so I was just walking around with like basically like Klingon ruffled... Uh, forehead stuff and like a small pleather jacket and fake fake uh, fangs <laughs> I was the I just looked like probably the little vampire because I think that movie had just come out but instead I was uh, watching a show for like I don't know 16 year old girls it's funnier that it's you because Angel was out when I was in high school and I am uh seven years older than you <laughs> so you you probably did not really convey uh, I'm a 300-year-old vampire very well. <laughs> oh, no, I'd be like Homer from Near Dark, where it's just, like, tragic. You're like, oh, man, you didn't even, like, go through puberty yet. This is this is brutal for you. Who was the littlest you... vampire? Who's the little kid from Jerry Maguire? That's the Jonathan definitely... Lipnicki? Yeah, you were definitely, you were Lipnicking all over I was Lipnicking it out. <laughs> See, I'm actually happy that I know what that kid's name is now, because when I was in high school, there was a Got Milk poster of him in the cafeteria. And I always wondered, who is that? And why does he look familiar? And I was always too lazy to Google it, but... Yeah. Wait, there was a picture of him in the cafeteria at your school? Yeah, it was a Got Milk poster. Oh! I'm like, okay, well, some teacher had a weird crush. (laughs) Weird and legally actionable. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, this is... a big uh, fan. Just huge fan, huge fan, huge Lipnicki fan. Um, yeah, he's not ripped. If you guys want to Google that after the, as a little bonus after the show, uh, okay. And he and he sometimes shows up at like stand-up shows because people are like, "Haha, child actor." Well, if there's one thing that clickbait has taught me, all child actors are either now ripped or look like horrible homeless winos. So, <laughs> as God intended. All right, yeah, number two. You gotta do some. You gotta do some sort of strong uh, body lifestyle choices to get through <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, number two. Once crashed his car into the concrete poles that protect an ATM machine. Peter. That was me. Ah. Uh, 
Um, and it's not even a, like a drunk story, but I like flew into one of them. Um, I was late. I had went to the video store I worked at in high school, and I drove like this big 1986 Mercury Grand Marquis. And I realized I left the keys to get into the video store to open it up at home. So I was trying to rush, and there was a sh- it was a you know Sunday. So the bank was closed, and I'm like, I'm just this is the quickest shortcut. Go through this this drive through at a bank. Uh, here's the thing about bank drive throughs they kind of have a turn a little bit. So when you're going like I don't know 15 in a giant Mercury Grand Marquis, you can't really adjust for those that well. Uh, so I slammed just fucking right in to the the concrete <laughs> pole. Uh, it like moved my door. On one side, because that car's just a big hunk of metal, so like my door, my passenger side door never opened right again. Um, <laughs> I like that you were still driving this car after this. Oh yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it didn't like it bounced off. It didn't do oh, anything. God. Yeah, those those like American cars from that yeah. era you're talking about. Uh, there's two types of cars I found out after my accident with a in a uh, Toyota Scion. There's cars that uh, bounce and then you take the impact, and there's cars that uh, crush and the car takes the impact. And my uh, Scion was the kind that crushed, so uh, I didn't get to drive that car anymore after that. <laughs> yeah, no, mine literally it shut off. It it like just shut off, bounced off, started right back up. I like immediately went reverse looked at it everything was basically fine and i went about my day um <laughs> i would have loved to see the uh bank camera that would have been like looking at the drive through i mean i love the idea that someone go did he just try to like knock over an atm and then gave up um <laughs> <laughs> really easily also my car was like yellow with uh green flames by the tire so it it you could have found it uh anyway and we'll have a picture of that up on our site <laughs> yeah i wish i wish i would have taken a picture pre-camera phones anyway Ooh, the there was no pictures of anything there's yeah. no pictures of anything unless you like planned it who yeah. fucking walks around with a camera take a picture of the car that they drive yeah no you have to, like put it put out the tripod duck behind the curtain where would you even get the pictures back what are you supposed to do when you're sending a nude picture to someone? Are you supposed to just take it and, like, walk it over and hand it to them? <laughs> Draw it. God. Draw The 20s Draw must it. have been rough. <laughs> All right. Number three. Uh, Sam, I think you have none, right? None. <laughs> you're, you're only playing against yourself, though. So <laughs> if you get a score of higher than zero, I guess you win. Oh, well. Uh, all right. Let's go with uh, once stabbed himself in the face with a screwdriver. <laughs> On the one hand, I want to think this over because I want to get it right. But on the other, I don't want to waste any time that could be spent hearing how this actually happened. <laughs> so let's say Aaron. Yeah, I, I absolutely stabbed myself <laughs> in the face with a screwdriver all the way to the like you could see the bone because <laughs> like the little part of the skull, it was a, it was a flat head and it was right below the knot, like right next to the nostril, still have a skull, scar there. Essentially, I was in college and well, Obviously. The old screwdriver face stabbing ears. Okay, I didn't have a bottle opener in this girl at this party was like, can you open this for me? And I didn't know, I don't know why I didn't know this yet in my life, but I didn't know like the put it on the counter and hit it trick. Didn't know. So I'm like going through like, okay, well, there's no bottle opener, no can opener, nothing like that. I'm going to find something. I found a screwdriver and I kind of like held it like I was like an old man, like trying to like get gold out of some like (laughs) container. It worked. It popped off. Here's the thing about uh, an object in motion. Uh, As I'm prying with all my strength to get this bottle off with a screwdriver, 
after it went off, the screwdriver kept going and just right, right into my face. Uh, there's a there's an alternate universe version of this story where I have one eye now. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! How, wait, where'd you hit cheek? I'm guessing just like side cheek. No, it's like literally um, like my left nostril. It is like right below there, like right where the top of my mustache would be. So it like hit bone really quick. Hypothetical mustache, yeah. Hypothetical mustache, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a scar? No, I have a scar. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've i never stabbed myself in the face, but I, as somebody who's clumsy as fuck, I uh, cut myself all the time. Oh, that's and an got tetanus? No, just that, I'm just that dumb. <laughs> just that clumsy. Just like I forget that, like, sometimes the knife keeps going. <laughs> also, screwdrivers. All right. It is one to zero and zero, I guess. But uh, Sam has however a, you're counting this. Can I have a point? Nah. <laughs> All right. Let's go with uh, bitten by the family dog as a child, and the dog got put down because of it. Oh. All right. That would be Peter. Yeah. <laughs> It was really, really sad the day that I realized. I'm like, yeah, the first dog I ever had was Domer. Yeah, Domer, Domer was a good dog. And then one day Domer bit me and then um, complete disconnect. And then uh, at some point Domer got put down because he was too old. And I, I think it took me years to like, like <laughs> squeeze that time period together <laughs> to be like, oh, Domer bit a three-year-old. <laughs> and so Domer got put down. Also, Domer was like 12 or 13 and like just like this pissy dog that was just like biting people all over the place and they were like as soon as he bit the baby they were like all right enough's enough and your brothers and sisters never forgave you <laughs> they was gonna say is they didn't bring this truth up to me and they're old enough to know whatever the fuck was going on so i had to learn i had to figure this out on my own and they'd be like wait a minute that's why don't more tied and they're like yeah <laughs> So the main thing I'm getting out of this, the main thing I'm getting out of this is you had a dog named Domer, and now I need to hear that story. Oh, it's it's just my parents were both went to Notre Dame. Uh, oh, Domer's okay. like a nickname. They we they did have we did have a babysitter that didn't like calling the dog Domer. We'd call the dog Dog or something <laughs> because she thought Domer sounded like Dahmer. And uh, oh. Jeffrey Dahmer was like still on people's minds. Je- Jeffrey Dahmer also bit people. <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer, big people biter. Yeah, him and Domer had a lot in common. He got put down for the same reason. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was a two-for-one special, same day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. That's two for you, Sam. Uh, house burned down when growing up. Did Peter's dog knock over a lamp in the house and burn it down? Is that the real reason <laughs> nope. he got put down? <laughs> no, but it was Peter. We'll give it you the point. Me, so you get the point. Um, we had a uh, dryer fire. Nobody was home except for my sister, who survived. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Uh, dryer set some clothes on fire. We just moved into a new house, and then I think, like, I don't know, a year or two later, maybe? Maybe sooner than that, uh, the house burned down because of this, like, weird malfunction with a dryer. So now, uh, we don't run the dryer when we're not home. Just sort of one of those things that's now built into me. You have to lose a house to figure that lesson out, but, uh, but yeah, that was the thing that happened to me as a kid. It was pretty, pretty weird. I was also young enough that it wasn't traumatized by it. I was just like, Oh, we already moved like a year ago. I guess we're moving again. <laughs> There's like a lot happening to Peter as a young child I wasn't aware of. Uh, like there's an funny. alternate there's an alternate version of this where you are a supervillain now. <laughs> and now we know what made Peter the way he is. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is why I, always, I just want to watch a bunch of Japanese ultraviolet movies in high school. <laughs> I need to get my rage out. <laughs> it's your invitation to me, just like Kyle Kinane. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a compliment, and I didn't mean it that yeah. way. So let me take it again. Let me take a take two. Take two. <laughs> yeah, uh, let me, let me, don't pull out your bozo voice. Hi, uh, uh, Peter here. <laughs> <laughs> Are you pushing your glasses up that it's I don't little, have? It's a little Bullwinkle-ish. <laughs> yeah, not really, okay. It's not really Bullwinkle, it's Joey Gladstone doing Bullwinkle. <laughs> uh, I'm just glad I wasn't getting your, your nerd voice. It's also a nerd voice. Bullwinkle's uh, kind of uh, uh, I'm uh, Aaron, and... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. Uh, listen Sorry. to our Running Man episode if you want to hear that for 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you don't. <laughs> All right. Uh, once sang Ice Ice Baby in front of a crowd of 10,000 people. Oh, you poor bastard, whoever it was. <laughs> was that Aaron? That was me. Yeah. Uh, July 4th days in Bismarck, North Dakota. Huge, huge amount of people. Um this band called Johnny Home used to go around uh, and play. They they were really good, kind of a cover band, but like people would go see them in concert. It's North Dakota. Uh, I think they would go to Montana too, and like Western Minnesota, South Dakota, stuff like that. But they played at my high school when I was senior, and they wanted people to come up and do songs. And I sang uh, "Animaniacs," all the countries of the world. <laughs> And then he asked me to sing other songs because he was so impressed by that. So I ended up singing Ice Ice Baby and Baby Got Back. And uh, he said, come see me after the show. And he's like, anytime I'm in concert anywhere, I'll remember you can come up, you can do the countries of the world and whatever other song you want to do. <laughs> so I probably did that like 20 times throughout uh, throughout like high school and college, which was a lot of fun. Um, but the, yeah, there was a July 4th day where it was like, just packed, like all, like a sea of people. And I, and I did, I say, baby. And then my parents were hearing about it, like at the dentist the next day, oh. I saw your son sing in front of a bunch of people. That's amazing. How I never heard this before. <laughs> I was going to say 10,000 people. Is that the most people have ever been in one place in North Dakota at one time or? Yeah. I mean, it means less coming from a Montana night. <laughs> I've been other places. I used to live in Kalispell, Montana. So I've been there. Why why are you comparing notes like you were both at Iwo Jima? (laughs) Because that is exactly what it's like. Unless you've experienced it, you will never know. You don't know, Peter. You weren't there. Um, anyway, all right. Uh, we got a couple more of these. Got sick as a kid and got to ride an ambulance and thought it was cool while his mom freaked out. Peter? Yeah, yes, Peter. awesome. This is just like <laughs> painting a real picture here, I think. <laughs> I had croup. It wasn't anything serious. She took me to uh, whatever, immediate care or whatever, uh, where they just kind of... Urgent care. You definitely don't have a kid. Immediate care. <laughs> no, it's not immediate, it's not immediate care. It's uh, uh, convenient care, uh, where they're just like... They just kind of like give you a quick diagnosis. They're expecting to give you like antibiotics or whatever. We were in there and it was like a little office right in the suburbs. And they were like, your son needs to go to the hospital. And I was like, do I? Because <laughs> I was, I had croup. I had this like massive congestion. I couldn't breathe. Like every 30 seconds, my throat kind of like seal up. It was, it was pretty annoying, but like I would breathe still. And I was a little kid, so I didn't realize how bad it was. So I got to ride in an ambulance. I got the oxygen tank, which was awesome. 
because it was just like, oh my god, I haven't been able to breathe in like three days. <laughs> uh, and during the ambulance, I kept trying to sit up so I could stare out the back window because I could tell the ambulance was going fast. And then uh, I, I could see my mom trying not to cry next to me. <laughs> so this all happened on the same day, right? <laughs> <laughs> Bit by a dog. House burnt down. You should have done my ambulance story because I got hit by a car on my bike while the car was going 30 and I broke the windshield with my back and then my head slammed on the pavement and then they uh, strapped me down to make sure I hadn't broken anything like my spine. Wow. My, my getting hit by a car story was way weaker than that. I just had a car run over my foot and I like dented the, the hood. I didn't do any real damage to the car. Or, we gotta save these myself. for episode number 100, I think. <laughs> yeah, wow. You have, you have a lot of memories or a great ability to lie. Yep. Um, all right. What a story, Mark. Oh, yeah. Can we slow this down a little bit? Um, what kind of story was it, Sam? <clears throat> what a story, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. I feel like it's one of your... I feel like it's sort of like uh, uh, Don Pardo. Everybody has to have one. Like, what, your one impression of this person. Yeah, it's pretty much just for saying, oh, hi, at people, but... <laughs> <laughs> but oh, oh, hi is how you... The perfect thing is, like, anything you say could be the calibrator, like, or the, the, the key to unlock it. You're like, like, oh, hi, and then you're ready for, like, 20 minutes. <laughs> Sam, do you have a Don Pardo you'd like to give us right now? A Don what? A Don Pardo? The, vo- the guy from SNL? Uh... Sam Scott! Yep, nope. Sorry. (laughs) That is right over my head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we can move on. (laughs) Wait, Sam, have you never seen an episode of Saturday Night Live? Not with Don Pardo in it. Okay, well, we're going to explain this to you later. (laughs) Uh, No no one's seen Don Pardo, Sam. Uh, this It's not like the Price is Right announcer who, for some reason, was on that show every episode yelling into the camera for one contestant. <laughs> I feel like that also went over Sam's head. Did you not watch the Price is Right? Was the guy dead when you were watching it? He did die. Should I be watching the Price is Right? I, I don't know. Is that what's been you missing what? from my life? <laughs> At this point, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> you missed it. It's only magical when you're, uh, what is that, like 10 years old and homesick? <laughs> yeah. They didn't get the prices right in Montana. <laughs> oh, no. What do they get? They get the goat is right. <laughs> it's, the goat is herded. Yeah. When you're home from sick, you got to clear out the ranch. <laughs> As someone who lived in Montana and North Dakota growing up. But you know what? Take it, Sam. Actually, we didn't even have TV when I was 10 years old because we were way up in the mountains in North Carolina. Oh, really? Yeah, we were hill people. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. This is all new news to me. Why were you, what were you doing uh, earlier during your three things about us? <laughs> yeah. Talking about this dog. Did the dog fight off wolves? <laughs> Here I was. I thought you were a mountain person and you're a hill person. Uh, we'll do a couple of these really quick. Uh, as a child, used to uh, play with his belly button. Did he play with his belly button while the house was on fire? That's the question you need to solve. <laughs> I think Aaron's about due. Yeah, I was definitely. Uh, you know, some people like suck their thumb, that kind of thing. I liked playing with my belly button. Don't know how to describe it. The most embarrassing part about it stopped at some age, but the most embarrassing part about that story is that I like I moved to North Dakota 
we had like a friend in elementary school that I was like really, really good friends with. And I was like in second grade. And like, I was like, we're such good friends. I'm going to reveal the biggest secret <laughs> about myself, which when you're eight, you don't have that many secrets. You, when you're eight, hopefully you have no secrets. You obviously don't know about the hobo I buried in the yard when I was eight, but go on. Well, that's, that's <laughs> North <months>. Carolina. <laughs> that's North Carolina for you. Everyone get, gets at least one hobo pre, pre-K. Uh, so, so yeah, so I remember I turned to him and was like, hey, you know, good, you're my best friend. I gotta let you know, tell you something. He's like, oh, what? Like, I used to play with my belly button. Uh, and that was the end of that friendship. Uh, <laughs> no, not really, but... Uh, and that person? Marco Rubio. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and that person? <laughs> Frank Stallone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he he did, like, that look that he gave me when I told him is, it's, it's you know, whatever, 26 years later, it's seared into my brain. <laughs> oh, no. Just like, this, just like, this was a terrible mistake. Why did I do this? <laughs> And you're like, you're like, when I when I keep all my secrets, I get to keep my friends. Yeah. Oh my God, I'll never I'll never be honest with anyone again. <laughs> <laughs> all this right. Explains so much, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, all right. As a kid, used to eat cold hot dogs out of the pack because he couldn't reach the microwave, but could reach the fridge bottom shelf. I feel like Peter is shorter, so I'm thinking Peter. I don't know if Peter's shorter. It's Peter. You're right. <laughs> well, obviously, um, the short one. Yeah, I could. I couldn't reach the microwave, but I could reach the bottom shelf, and eventually, <laughs> the hot dogs got moved to a higher shelf. <laughs> yeah. When somebody caught me uh, clutching a cold, wet hot dog and just just eating it with nothing on it, because I also couldn't. I also couldn't reach the, reach the ketchup or the mustard or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> so, real quick, though, let's solve another thing. Uh, Peter, what's your height, Sitch? Six one. Six, six even. Yeah. Aaron sounds like he'd be, I think I told him this before, he sounds like he'd be a behemoth of a man, <laughs> like a six, eight. But uh, no, he's he's about my height. Yeah. It's all width <laughs> as I get older. <laughs> Square footage. Yeah. It's still got a lot of volume. But uh, 40 miles of elbow room. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Last one. um, Broke his wrist when a larger than average child fell on it in gym class. A child of unusual size. Well, you know, fat kids kind of a mean thing to say. (laughs) Aaron. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Trick question. I broke his wrist. (laughs) I I was the fat kid. Uh, No, I was super skinny at that age. And uh, yeah. A kid fell on my wrist uh, playing mat ball, and uh, yeah, they fractured it. Got to wear a cool wrist, or a cool wrist. Yep. Got to wear someone else's wrist. Uh, <laughs> got to wear a cast. Uh, only only bone I've ever broken. Yeah. Was it your dominant hand or your non-dominant hand? It was my right hand. It was a submissive hand. It was a submissive hand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thankfully, it's it's second grade we're talking here, so it's not like ninth grade where breaking my wrist would have really caused some problems. <laughs> or, or you know, when, when you were like... Uh, or 33. Or 33 and married. Yeah. Or 33 and working in a coal mine, and that could mean, you know, you just get fired because you can't handle the, the steam release valve. That seems secondary to what I'm talking about, Peter. <laughs> well, Aaron, I just hope you have a warm place to do the first thing. <laughs> you can always get another job. Look, we're talking about two different sets of steam release valves here, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you so much for playing. Uh, 50th episode, get to know Aaron and Peter. Uh, was, I don't know how many I forgot was stop keeping track of points at some point. Uh, we'll say you got eight. I feel sure. like you. I feel like you were on a roll. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. Actually, you know, let's make it a hundred while we're at it. It could have been a hundred. Yeah, you know, I'm not one to judge. Uh, you know, I'll be editing this. We'll look back on the tape. If you've estimated incorrectly, we'll send you the bill for the rest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can I pay you an exposure? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Do you guys want to talk about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Let's talk about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Pretty little curls hanging down so low. Walking in my sleep, babe, walking in my sleep. Up and down that Dixie line, walking in my sleep. Um, all right. Peter, I'm five seconds. You are 90. So... Uh, five second recap is uh, Sleepwalker kills people and then the mad scientist isn't so mad. There's actually a lot going on in this movie. I don't know why yeah. I uptone at the end of the five second. Yeah, I don't know why you did that. Because I didn't know if that was the end because it's a twist. <laughs> it's it's, it's a funny. twist ending. <laughs> it's a twist ending. All right. Yeah, so I uh, will do the 90 second recap. Great. Stop talking about it. <laughs> Do it. And I'd love to do it right now. This one. I'll do it. So, uh, Dr. Glad we'll try that for number 50. Town. Shut the fuck up. Well, you weren't Dr. doing Cal- it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who's coming Dr. to town? Caligari comes to town. Dr. Caligari. <laughs> and he, uh, he has a little act, a somnambulist act. And in this act, he demonstrates this this particular condition that this character has. He's been asleep for the entirety of his life, but I can wake him and he will will uh, tell you uh, your future. Uh, you might not like it, but he'll tell you your future. Right before this act is viewed by the, these two men, uh, they're walking around town, they talk to a pretty lady, and, and then they have a really weird conversation about how like, Oh, man, if I don't marry her, you will. And we will remain friends forever after that, because that is how human beings work. (laughs) And (laughs) so they both go to the show. Uh, She predicts, or excuse me, the somnambulist predicts that Alan is going to die. Uh, And uh, soon after... Alan is murdered in his room uh, as a part of a series of murders that are happening in town uh, ever since this Dr. Caligari has shown up in town. There's a sort of, uh, you know, his friend, Francis, who's grief-stricken, he's sort of uh, wandering around town trying to get help from Jane, uh, from her father, Dr. Olson, and they eventually investigate the somnambulist. There's a, a sort of, like, uh, a murderer type who says, like, I'm a murderer type, but I didn't commit these murders, uh, who's caught in the meantime, and the police think they have their guy. They don't have their guy. Uh, then they inves- investigate Caligari. They basically find that his uh, alpi- uh, not alpino, what's the term? His alibi for... Wait, 
We're going to come back to that. <laughs> they find out that his, al- his alibi for these murders that, you know, they couldn't have been committed by me and they couldn't have been committed by my somnambulist because he's been asleep this whole time are fake because he has a doll that doubles for the somnambulist when he's out there. The police kind of discover his secret. You know, just they in case someone's to... peeking through his window in the middle of the night. Yeah, exactly. It's a very it's a very strange uh, contrivance to, to throw in. But Francis chases Caligari to an insane asylum. He works with the insane asylum's doctors to discover that he's actually this, this head doctor, this head director is Caligari. And that after investigating him some and uh, reading some of his diaries, and then they, uh, at the end of the film, it's sort of revealed that uh, this guy that's in the insane asylum and is making these accusations against the director is actually the crazy one, and Caligari is a head doctor trying to heal him. Yep, that is how the movie, and that's the way it was. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the way it was, and it only took five hours. Yeah, we just got to start calling out five-minute recaps. I do it, too. The uh, Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about our history with this movie. Uh, what we thought, oh, general thoughts, and then we'll kind of just go to whatever we want to talk about. So um, I, I'll start quick. Um, I, I saw this for the first time about three or four years ago. Always been on my list. Um, loved it. Then loved it. Now, uh, between it, it for favorite silent non-comedy movie, I'd probably either give it to this or uh, Sunrise, both just absolute masterpieces. Um, you know, really happy to kind of close out silent horror with this movie because I think it's uh, even though I really like Haxon and I really like uh, Nosferatu, I really think this movie just kind of is. So much ahead of its time uh, for even the silent era, but also like doing stuff that would be creepy now. I think this this is the creepiest movie that we've done this month. I think I haven't seen all silent horror movies, but I think it would be tough to match this for its kind of uh, for the expressionism parts, for the the creepy moments and, uh, you know, really shocking twist ending the first time I saw it. I was legitimately surprised. Um and uh, liked it so much on this watch, I decided to watch the hour-long documentary that was on the Blu-ray, the Kino Blu-ray, and also watch the two-hour documentary that I discovered was from the same guy, uh, from Caligari to Hitler. Uh, and I realized that uh, as I'm like, did this guy play? One of these two people plagiarized each other because they're setting up things the same way, only f- for a quick trip to IMDb to reveal that. Oh no, same dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, he just really well, liked this theme. He really did. One is a lot more focusing on like Caligari, and the other one a lot more uh, Caligari's a jumping off point for uh weimar germany's uh but the cabinet of dr caligari one touches on some of those other films that were being made at the same time as well uh I, you probably didn't need to watch both i would actually recommend the doc on the disc over from caligari to hitler because they have a lot of the same stuff but still i have a ton of information i watched three hours of docs just so i could pronounce uh weimar germany correctly only to find out that uh on the doc some people call it weimar some people call it weimar so choose your own adventure of getting foreign words right finally after three hours of research i could have just said whatever the fuck i wanted learn nothing about the movie i do like that uh aaron is in a position now where even though he did more research than me uh the fact that i call it the weimar republic very confidently makes it sound 
like I did just as much research. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, my history with uh, this movie is that I actually, uh, it was one of my first silent movies I ever watched. Watched it in high school. Um, I used to, this is, a, I mentioned in uh, previous weeks, but I used to score my own silent movies after I would watch them afterwards. Oh, cool. I'd be like, oh, like he conduct an orchestra, just to be clear. He would rent them out. <laughs> They'd play in his house. Yeah, I'm probably using a too highfalutin term for what I was doing, but uh, I was basically, uh, I'd be like, okay, so this segment of the movie definitely needs something um, a little bum, bit bum, more bum, industrial. Bum. This, yeah, this needs a little more zippy. Like, I didn't really, I never really attached myself to many of these silent movie scores, but I got really into them as just like, this is my score, this imagery. It's all Robert Wines. This is this is beautiful stuff that I'm just trying to like, kind of, you know, follow up. Uh, and yeah, I, I watched a lot in high school. I used to pair it up with all sorts of shit. Like sometimes, sometimes it would be horror stuff. Um, I a lot talked about uh, Demdeka Stare, which is like this cool sort of like occultic ambient music I used for Haxon. I would also use uh, Yellow House by Grizzly Bear for this. Um, and yeah, I, I got really attached to the movie that way, sort of like putting putting music over it. And yeah, it's got a history as uh, the earliest horror movie. Um, though many other previous horror movies had, you know, horror, or pretty many other previous movies had horror imagery. This is kind of agreed upon as the first like real horror movie. Uh, that's that was my entry point into it. It weirdly for a movie from 1920, it kind of feels like a trashy horror movie. It's got a a really contrived twist, a contrived framing device. <laughs> It sort of zips along. Anytime you start to sort of get, um, not bored, but anytime you sort of start to, to fade, it uh, throws a murder in. It's a, it's a movie that I was attached to always as this sort of like fun silent movie, whereas like at the time, silent movies didn't necessarily appeal to me because I wasn't really necessarily into um, silent comedy until fairly recently. Sam, well, what's your history with this movie? You mentioned that this is the third time you've seen it. What What is your history? What were your thoughts? What are your feelings? Tell me how you how feel. How does your skin feel? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've seen it once because I was going to Germany and then again for a class and then again for this. Did you like it any of those times you were forced to watch it? All of them, obviously. <laughs> no, I'm <just> <laughs> um, well, I'm going to Germany. Better watch. I know how much they talk about Calgary over there. <laughs> I still do have the Calgary postcards I got in Berlin too. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. So yeah. So what are your what are your overall uh, what do you like about it, Sam? One thing that became very clear during the summary is it is not a movie you watch for the script, but <laughs> but it looks amazing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's it's a visual piece that I just kind of took as a visual piece the whole time I was engaging with it. Yeah, but yeah, of course, um, you know, Tim Burton was my first favorite director. So obviously, this is kind of like ground zero <laughs> for all the stuff he was doing. So that makes it really cool. And of course, there's lots of, I don't know, lots of the directors in that style who draw a lot from this. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 um, it's got... Tim Burton qualities in the fact that it's a German expressionist movie. Uh, it has like a sort of gothic feel to it. Um, it's not necessarily about um, literal spaces. It's about these sort of like figurative dream spaces. And like even though even if there'll be a chase scene even in a 
sort of dream space, mm-hmm. which is uh, just kind of kind of interesting because it's a very exciting movie. It's a dream. It's a, a dreamy movie, but it's not a movie that like uh, allows itself to become boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, the Tim Burton comparison is pretty. I have no proof of this. But I will be really shocked if Dr. Seuss never saw this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a note about that, that this this looks like something Dr. Seuss like saw as a kid and was like, I get it. <laughs> this is how I see the world anyway. I'm going to draw my art exactly like that. Like the when they're doing the rooftop chase, mm-hmm. like it looks like something directly out of the Sneetches or yeah. uh, why can't I think I read Dr. Seuss books every <laughs> night. Now I'm drawing a blank. Uh, the, uh, how, how, uh, Jesus Christ. The, what's the book you give at graduation? How far you'll go. If you build it, if, if you build it, it will come. <laughs> oh, the places you'll go. Yeah. <laughs> it, it looks like something from there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's got the sort of, uh, fucked up proportions and it's, it, it kind of feels like a, um, Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland thing as well got dreamy proportions you know it's funny though that you mentioned the script so i actually like the script's fine obviously silent films especially were you know visual medium and they're trying to tell a story and the dialogue uh, is less important uh but i like i thought this i thought the dialogue here was better than like something like nosferatu i i think that nosferatu had a, a problem with how it was translated uh, where it was probably translated by people that were trying to, especially in the version I saw, it was trying to capitalize on the Dracula craze. There was a lot of like lines that were sort of hinting at the, the grander, Americanized version of the Dracula mythos that probably were in the original. But I think in this this cut of Caligari, the the dialogue, the, at least the Kino Lorber restoration cut that I watched, the di- the English dialogue flowed pretty well. But it's, I mean, it's often just you know there to get the job done the movie itself is pretty literary like there's a lot of like all right let's sit down and read some shit let's read this letter let's read this book about somnambulism let's read this thing uh that's that's you know something that a fragment of its time that's very much like uh we talked about that when i watched uh vampire uh for for uh spooktober where like the first hour of that movie is just people reading books Yes, 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 yes. The first hour of, of Vampire, the um, the Dryer movie, right? Yeah, yeah. The first hour of Vampire is is yeah, people being like, "What the hell is a vampire?" And then the movie gets better after it kind of gets through this this self conscious section where it's like, "Does the audience even know what this is?" <laughs> I realize that you have to if you're gonna have a, a, a strange specific monster, you kind of have to explain it. Um, and this movie has the same thing. It, uh, the somnambulism is like something and the, the, the myth of Dr. Caligari is something that they kind of had to like at some point sit down and be like, all right, class. <laughs> I don't think they do, because if you are a sleepwalker, you can you can see the future. Everyone knows it. Fact. Fact. Prove us wrong. Science. Aaron, as someone who you we kind of bonded over Lovecraftian shit. Did you feel like the fact that this movie associated dreamers with having some sort of like special arcane knowledge uh, as being a sort of like Lovecraftian concept, and and not that the movie specifically pulled from Lovecraft, but did, were you getting Lovecraft vibes? I didn't really get Lovecraft vibes, except in the sense that like that that feeling of creepy doom, but not being like directly scared. I, 
I like the idea that this movie kind of presents. I know this is not exactly what's going on where Cal Caligari, once he asks you to see his future, once, once the, uh, once, uh, Caesar sees your future, like you're going to be doomed no matter what, uh, you know, just, just the act of him, uh, looking in to see what happens is going to, he's going to predict an early death for you. And I know that's because Caligari is orchestrating it, but I love that idea that Lovecraft does very well, which is knowledge equals death. And, and he, you know, someone getting a knowledge of their future essentially like escalates how quick they're going to die. There is a, a, um, self-fulfilling prophecy <laughs> in this. And I don't know if you necessarily agree with me where I think that Caligari, before the massive twist at the end, Caligari as a figure kind of wants to raise terror and be this sort of like figure of power. And the, re- the way he, he gains that power is by having his prophecies come true. And that's why he sends the somnambulist out. And so the, the idea of a self-fulfilling, a self-fulfilling prophecy is very interesting to me in the context of this, because like we've also watched plenty of movies in the past couple weeks and uh, over the course of this podcast, even that have been uh, very supernatural and very outright about their supernaturalness. And Caligari, <laughs> like for a movie that has like a dream, dreamscapeness to it, I think most of it could have just happened in reality. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of pseudoscience with his, you know, texts on somnambulism where it's kind of explaining how yeah, this could totally happen, probably. Yes, that's the ask of the movie, which is like most horror movies have an ask. Like uh, Split recently has an ask where it's like, listen, if you're not willing to buy for these next 90, 100 minutes, whatever, if you're not willing to buy our weird, trashy definition of what split personalities are, you're not going to have a great time. <laughs> <laughs> There's an ask at the beginning of a lot of horror movies. I think the ask at the beginning of this is like, listen, this is how we're defining somnambulism. This is where, you know, we're, they read uh, minds yeah. and your future <laughs> and they're zombies. Yeah. <laughs> and this is this is tying into the zombie myth, of course, because this is the idea that you can drug someone into this sort of sleep state where they'll be your, your slave. Um, the, the original voodooist. Yeah, and it invented the zombie walk, right? Yeah, yeah. It's got zombie walk, all the mannerisms. It's got the arms outstretched. It's the stumbling gait. It, it's um, a slow sleepiness. Um, yeah, it's got all the it's got all the trademarks of what a, a zombie would be in terms of like a motor function. Yeah, and I also like the way that – because the way that he's walking, I think, also kind of reflects the architecture because, you know, the way that Caesar kind of lurches through the town, he's almost at like the same strange angle as most of the buildings and the map paintings and the sets. And I have to assume that that is um, – that that's by design, like the creepy expressionism that is uh, af- infecting the town in some way is, you know, is almost if you're looking at it from like an interpretation of the audience is almost like brought on by the infection of evil that's come there. Like Caesar's presence, Caligari's presence kind of twists the town to match him. Once we by the time we get to the insane asylum and we realize we're like in Caligari's domain, you're like that that is when the architecture is well and truly fucked up. Like we actually see somebody open a door. That's basically an isosceles triangle. (laughs) And that's, that's his realm. That's his domain. Um, And it it also his walk. It's funny. You say that reminds me of how in Nosferatu, 
Which is it is not not of a, as an impressionist of a movie. It is not really an expressionist movie. It's more gothic. Uh, it's more gothic, but his the way he dresses sort of helps heighten the, the, the creature Nosferatu. The way he dresses helps heighten the um, the shadows and such in the background. So I totally truly agree with you there that like in in Calgary, there's like the way he moves sort of and the way he acts on these sort of flat spaces in the background and the flat spaces in the foreground it really yeah it helps sell the illusion of this as this this unique this one space um it's kind of weird late in the movie where a character is like exhausted and he sits in a leather chair and i'm like oh it looks like a nice chair <laughs> whereas in a tim burton movie it would be like a weird fucked up chair with teeth and shit on it well you still had to buy a chair that would fit through the door <laughs> <laughs> the movers are like, ah, I don't know, I'm going to fit through this triangle door. Pivot! <laughs> it fit in. It's got to fit out. Um, so did anyone else, Sam, uh, Peter, did you guys know the term somnambulist before uh, before seeing this movie? Because I can tell you, <laughs> I did not. Well, yeah, I did actually because this gets back to Dr. Seuss because when I was a kid, I had a book of his uh, – humor columns that he did before he started writing kids books and one of them was called some nambulists and some don't (laughs) (laughs) such a perfect dr seuss (laughs) yeah that's cute uh i had heard it from this and i do not know if i'd heard it any earlier because i watched this movie when i was 13 i was much older i guess it doesn't come up that often but it's (laughs) It's not a common term it's not a common term even if you do sleepwalk it's not seen as like we need to give you some sort of like name (laughs) to call you in public so that people can recognize your your sleepwalking disability or yeah. something. Uh, but uh, I think I looked it up halfway through the movie because I assumed it was like just a name for a monster that I was unaware of. And then at some point, uh, I, I do remember looking it up. So the movie makes a lot more sense once you know what it means. Yeah, I have a, I have a question for you guys. Um, this is something I'm very curious about. Are either of you somnambulists? Have you ever had, even when you were a kid? Because most people grow out of it. Most people are, if you are a sleepwalker, you are as a kid. Yeah, or have either of you slept, walked regularly or, you know, anything like that? Sam? Oh, uh, I think Sam Sam sleepwalking right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never did. But when I was a kid, uh, one of the preschool teachers told a story about somebody who was sleepwalking and walked through a plate glass door and got all cut up. And that really freaked me out. So then I convinced myself that I was always going to sleep with my eyes open in case I started sleepwalking. <laughs> Yeah, that teacher, Mike Burbiglia. <laughs> yeah. That would freak the fuck out of me. So I think I did once or twice when I was, like, really younger. I know some people in my family did. But uh, the one time I kind of remember was when I was in junior high and I had went to – slept over a friend's house. And we did the dumb thing where, like, I'm going to stay up all night and we're going to stay up all night and drink Jolt Cola. <laughs> and, be like, it was probably the first time in my life I can remember where I didn't fall asleep and then went about my day the next day. And at some point, I remember falling asleep in my parents' basement, like, on the couch that we had down there. And then the next thing I knew, I was being yelled at by both of my parents at the dinner table because I had been eating dinner, cutting a steak – and crying that I couldn't figure out how to cut it. And like and I kind of came to and they're like, "What is your problem? You are acting insane." <laughs> and and I'm like, "Uh this might be tough for you guys to believe, 
but I just woke up <laughs> and I don't know what's going on. Um, but like I, I had been, um, but I had been like, tur- my, my mom, I was watching TV and my mom's like, turn off the TV. You need to go do some stuff. And I would just look at her and go and turn it back on. Um, like a, like a zombie. Yeah. Um, actually I do have a much worse story. Uh, that happened a couple years ago. I swear I was not drunk at all, had not been drinking, but, um, my wife, my wife, my wife, and I, we just had our daughter, we're back at my parents' house, sleeping in the same room. My wife, my wife, my wife had put her dress on the, on this other bed that she was going to wear the next day, and she woke up to me peeing on that dress. (laughs) (laughs) She heard, like, Uh... a, a tinkling noise, and she came to, like, yell at me, and I put my arm around her and said, hey... And then she's like, what are you doing? Like, and our, our two-month-old is sleeping in this, like, in this room, too, in a bassinet. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, she's like, you're peeing on my dress. I'm like, oh, okay. And I went and I took it and I put it in the sink in the bathroom and ran water over it and handed it to her and then went back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> what a she, hero. Yeah. And she was – she thought I had been up drinking – and I, we hadn't had really anything to drink. I think I had one glass of wine. And then I went to bed and she's like, you are so drunk. You pee. I'm like, uh, listen, we did, you can ask anyone here. We did not drink last night. <laughs> um, I think I was sleepwalking. Wow. Yeah, I had a very similar thing happen to me in college, but I was drinking um, where I got up and peed somewhere I should not have. Um, and then I had to clean up pee at 4 a.m. while someone was yelling at me. Uh, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife washed the dress twice, but she had it out because uh, it was for my my brother's wedding reception was there. <laughs> That's why we were back there. And wow. she wore she, she still she still had to wear it because she didn't have any other dress, but she washed it twice. And then like halfway through the uh, the reception or breakfast or whatever it was, she's like, do I do I smell like pee? And I'm like, I leaned in. I'm like, yeah, that still smells like pee. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't you lie? Well, I told her she shouldn't have worn it because I peed on it. It's my dress. So that's what you get for wearing someone else's. Yeah. She didn't know my family that well, though. She had to go downstairs and like she apparently looked really concerned, like on her face. And and someone was like, what's wrong? (laughs) And she's like, Aaron peed on my dress. So I come downstairs and everyone's already mad at me. I'm like, whoa, hey. I was sleepwalking. What do you want me to do? <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I did that once in college when I was drunk. But as a kid, I, I sleptwalked all the time, especially at sleepovers. Anytime I was at a new <laughs> house, I would sleepwalk and wake up weird places. Uh, once as a kid. I think we know how the house burned down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did not have a Haxon-esque match lighting. Uh, the, the kid would have like a bunk beds or trundle beds or whatever. We'd be sleeping in the same room and then he would wake up to me on the couch downstairs. Or like one time I, I was really embarrassed because I woke up in the kid's dad's office. Just sitting in a leather chair in my boxers. <laughs> Reading the Financial Times. (laughs) I scared the shit out of him, uh, the the father, and then he apologized quickly and then bought us donuts. Um, But I was I was super embarrassed and he was super embarrassed, too. That's the worst, too, because there's not there's nothing like less understanding of weird 
tendencies than like elementary school kids. Just like, never mind, never invite him anywhere again. Yeah, like the freak can't come over anymore. <laughs> yeah, I want to kind of let's let's dive into one area of the movie that I really want to talk about, um, which is which is the twist ending. Uh, so it's it's basically not only the first horror movie, the first like horror movie with a twist, and I definitely feel like. That influenced horror movies because it is it is rare that horror movies don't have some sort of twist at the end. Can be a little twist, like the killer's still alive for thirty more seconds. Can be a big mind fuck of a twist, like this one's attempting to be. Um, I really like the twist in this movie. I do think it's funny that not only did horror movies steal the concept of always ending with a twist from this movie, but it feels like about half of them stole this specific <laughs> twist. Like the person you think is sane is actually insane and vice versa. Um, the the whole like this is kind of an imagined version of events really started early in cinema, yeah. uh, which was kind of kind of shocking to me when I saw this for the first time a few years ago. Well, and of course, it's not supposed to be there. What I learned in class is that the twist just kind of confused everybody so much that it made everything worse. I know the framing device at least was added later, but I didn't know how that tied in with the twist. Oh, yeah, that was so weird because like they have the frame. And they close it and think, oh, it must be over now. And then suddenly there's this other frame <laughs> that they got to get through after the one frame is over. I love this movie. It's a, it's a big part of me. Uh, but no film is perfect. And I think the twist is um, just as clumsy as a twist that I don't like in, in 2017. But it uh, has the, the beautiful benefit of being from 1920. So it's charming. Uh, there's a sort of like quaintness to it, and I don't say that in a condescending way. Like I, the way that it's delivered just feels different than a shitty twist from like what's that? That's like Identity or uh, uh, you know one of the lesser M Night Shyamalan <laughs> movies, a cheap 2000s era movie where at the end they're like, oh, or High Tension. High Tension is the ultimate movie that is ruined by a terrible twist. twist. Because, yeah, because High Tension I think would be a movie if played straight would be pretty much a masterpiece for me. A very lean, very simple masterpiece, but a masterpiece. And then the twist makes it into sort of a regressive, gross, homophobic movie. Um, and I think that this movie get benefits from being old. Well, and also, I think it benefits from being old in that it kind of sucker punched me, I feel like. Because oh, yeah. I wasn't expecting a twist from a hundred-year-old movie that's as, like, is almost plot by plot a twist that would be used today. Like that idea of that, that rug pulling, that really uh, recontextualizing everything that you saw before it as like essentially not real, or at least did that happen? Uh, real is like St. Elsewhere and uh, wait, St. Elsewhere wasn't the one that ended with the snow globe, was it? I think uh, it was. was that, was that Doogie Hauser or was it St. Elsewhere? It was definitely not Doogie Hauser. <laughs> St. Elsewhere was in the uh, the autistic child's dream, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was St. Elsewhere. So, like, but that kind of, like, ending has been, like, they end TV shows that way. They end movies that way. And so, but it it feels like a, a screenwriter idea from 30, 40 years ago tops. So for it to fucking be in a hundred-year-old movie <laughs> when I watched it, almost, like, exactly how they would do it today, it really knocked my socks off. It was actually a twist that worked only because I w didn't have those little, like, twist uh, antennas going. <laughs> I didn't have my twist star. <laughs> yeah. Because, because why would it do that? Movies back then didn't do this. They 
you know, we kind of talked about that in the Nosferatu episode. It tells their story and it gets out. And that's what's really great about some older movies. Um, but they don't they don't do this. And that really blew me away. Or do they? It's a twist. Yeah, I half expected the end, uh, the end title card of this to go, the end? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I agree that the fact that it is so old catch, catch me off guard, caught me off guard. Because uh, actually, it had been maybe five years since I've seen this movie. Did it get you again? It did get me again. It, it, where I was like, I just remembered it being about a murdering, traveling, somnambulist act. And like a sort of like not quite freaks because like the freaks are pushed to act um, but it's sort of like that where it's like these guys have their act they show up to town and then some weird shit happens <laughs> did it get um, you Sam? no because I'd read about it already and actually you know a lot of critics don't like the twist because they just jammed it on there after the premiere and I think you know I've read some things where people say kind of messes up the whole anti-authoritarian thing where they have to research people. Oh yeah, you can totally trust the doctor. He knows what he's doing. Which pre-Nazi is pretty pretty fucking weird, right? It it absolutely undermines the entire theme and I think in some ways undermines a lot of the thesis of you know, uh, I mentioned that I watched the documentary from Caligari to Hitler Um, it really does because it kind of – and I know, Sam, you've seen that as well, which is actually really great. But at some point very early on, the point being that like what did German cinema know before the people knew that fascism was on the rise, it breaks down really early and just kind of shows some great clips of silent movies, which is absolutely worth your time. It's like the electric boogaloo of Weimar era uh, German cinema. Uh, so it's it's worth your time, but – Beyond the fact that you could easily say, oh, well, there was a lot of unrest between World War One and World War Two, and uh, the films reflected that feeling of unease and terror and unrest that is going on through a kind of a big transition. It's not like they knew that Hitler was going to come, which is kind of the thesis of the kind of thesis of the movie in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also that, like, they're saying that here Calgary portrayed these Dr. Calgary is this evil evil man who takes advantage of people and how he's like a scientist who uses his brain to manipulate people and have this uh, fascistic tendencies which is completely undermined by the mm-hmm. ending. Still love it, but Well, and the, the other thing about the ending is you can kind of tell that they just kind of jammed it together because I think like part of it was supposed to reassure people with all the expressionism right, that it, this isn't how the world is, it's just how this crazy person sees it except that they use all the same sets in what's supposed to be the real world. Yeah, 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 yeah. The twist in general bothers me because, uh, yes, not only because of the creepy connotations of, like, turning a anti-authoritarian piece into something that's actually quite encouraging of authoritarianism, <laughs> um, and Watch out for of, crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> Railing it, against authority. But also, I think that it um, it has the inherent problem that most uh, most twist endings where it's like the guy was crazy all along, most of the time when the twist ending is that, my problem with it is that that's so much less interesting than the weird fantasy world that we were in before. Yeah. And that's my problem with the village. That's the problem with uh, my problem with a lot of like just straight ahead slasher movies that decide the last five minutes. Like, actually, it was Toby the whole time. <laughs> I my problem is that like sometimes 
no twist is more interesting. A good story well told is interesting, and up until that point, it's a good story well told. See, um, I, I I disagree a little. I mean, it definitely undermines its themes, but I think it works like in a – this is clearly like a proto-Lynch movie in a lot of ways. Like, there's a lot of – Lynch's DNA that probably came from watching like German expressionism films and, and, you know, silent horror films. It feels like, especially something like Eraserhead, which almost uses like the same like imposing buildings and, and weirdly created structures that don't quite make sense. Uh, maybe not to the level of something like this, but in, in some, some respects. And I think that the twist works as like a dream logic twist where you don't need to necessarily throw away the the first 65 minutes of the movie but just like recognize that something weird has changed and maybe it's because he was crazy the whole time or maybe it's because Dr. Caligari was able to basically uh write the ship from his perspective or to turn his fortunes but but something inexplicable has changed in like the almost like the mall and driveway where something all of a sudden changes and then you're you're left with a different reality. And obviously you can easily interpret Mulholland Drive as the first two hours of the movie don't happen. I think you can do the same thing with Caligari. I just think it's more interesting and washes over me better if it is a twist in a perspective, but not necessarily a twist that the previous reality we saw didn't happen in some respects. Yeah, but I think that a, a Lynchian movie would more so uh, set up that insanity was an angle much earlier. He just kind of goes to the insane asylum. He's like, well, uh, uh, Caligari went that way. And then he's like, well, I guess I have to walk into this insane asylum. He went that uh, away. <laughs> your interpretation of it, I think, would enhance my viewing of it a second time around. Like, I could probably, because sometimes when you and I watch movies, I can be like, oh, this is the way Aaron saw it. And I can grab that and watch the movie as best I can through that filter. With this, I have the problem because so early in the movie, it's just like uh, uh, Francis sitting in a park talking to a guy. There's nothing about the framing vice about insanity. And then eventually he's just like, Francis like, let me go to this insane asylum. Uh, and then you're like, oh, oh, I guess the movie is about insanity. I thought it was about this like self-fulfilling prophecy of this mystical monster. <laughs> Or, and I think that's the thing about the ending because it changes the movie from being about the world is insane to just this one guy is insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, let me start that over. It definitely undermines the themes in a big way. But I still like it as an impressionistic twist yeah. and not a literal this stuff didn't happen twist. Yeah, yeah. It, it just makes it makes the world a little smaller. It's a little headcanony for me to say it like that, but I just – I think it also works even in a – you know, he gets to the asylum and the dream part is that his his overturning uh, Caligari as the head of the sanitarium is successful, but instead he's committed. And I know that doesn't work because Caesar's there too, but I, I just – I. I'm always hesitant and maybe again this is this is me not seeing what's on screen this is me like again saying my own interpretation of it but it just works better for me if I'm not throwing out the first 65 minutes yeah. of the movie. So when I watch it I don't throw it out I just I go on its dreamlike logic to you know that that thing where like you wake up from a dream go back to sleep and you're in the same dream but some things have changed. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that's something we bond over often is like dispo- having to dispose of large sections of the film as like the folly of an insane person is just not uh, a satisfying to watch, a satisfying way to watch a film, unless the way that they viewed that insanity, the way that 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 particular psychosis came about. Uh, can be viewed through a new filter and made richer. And in this case, the twist makes it so those 65 minutes, to me at least, feel wasted if you accept the twist ending. So for me, for me, it's lazier. It's intellectually lazier for sure. But I just uh, refuse to accept the twist ending. I'd rather just throw out the five-minute twist than the other hour of the movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an easier path for me. I love so much of the movie that it's kind of okay. Like, oh, they had to they had to put this weird thing in. Okay, sort of like how when I watched Exorcist three, I liked the weird ending that the the producers demanded. It's got some really clunky, awful shit in it, but it's kind of fun. Uh, and then I found out later, I was like, oh, there's a director's cut, and this is what Blatty intended. And if Blatty had his full budget, this is what he would have shot. And I'm like, oh. So, like, I can only judge the movie based off what's presented here. I like what's presented here. But in my mind, I'm like, uh, love the first three-fourths or whatever of the movie more so. Yeah, and anytime you're dealing with a movie that has, like, that's this seeped in dream logic, I feel like it's okay for you to go, look, I'm not saying that the, the twist is a real twist or the other part didn't happen. I'm fine watching the movie and going... For me, there's no definitive answers. I'm just going to let the whole experience watch over me. That's not that's not fair to do with something like uh, Saving Private Ryan or a movie that's pure plot. But when you're in this in this much of a dreamlike state throughout the course of the movie, it's fine to kind of just accept it all as a weird dream where a twist like that doesn't doesn't overwrite what you've seen because you you're still dealing you're still meeting the movie on its own terms without like getting into fan theory territory i feel like yeah 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 i i agree um with that as well and i think it sort of doubles back on the the lynchian stuff you were talking about where i guess since the whole movie is dreamlike i'm not outright offended by the twist i'm going ah that's miscalculated not uh, fuck you. <laughs> um, like, uh, have you, ever, you guys ever heard of a John Cusack movie called Identity? Yeah, it's terrible. And they're all... Fig- I'm going to spoil it because it's an irredeemable pile of shit. Please, tell me all Great cast, you've about. You've got about five seconds before <laughs> I spoil Identity. They're all figments of his imagination. <laughs> Every character in the movie that gets murdered, it's completely wasted time. And the movie is played as sort of... Um, as literal, as realistic as a thriller of the era would have been. It's even so, it's even worse than figments of the of his imagination. They're all twelve of his personalities battling for dominance in this hotel in his mind. Yeah, and you're like, well, yeah, obviously the murder identity come on top because he's a murderer, and he did. But the twist is it has two twists. One, the twist is that the good. Uh, the good personality won out in the end, and that, of course, it's in his head. And then it has one more twist, 
where nope i guess the murderer won all along <laughs> it wants to have its cake and eat it too sort of thing but that makes you feel like you wasted the first 90 percent of the movie 95 percent of the movie and it's a piece of shit movie that movie doesn't have dream logic at all until it reaches its, its climax the movie wasn't setting off on any sort of disorienting path it was just yeah. like here it's is just a thriller people keep about finding out dead there's going to be something smarter going on here. More, more cerebral. We're going to end up in Netflix's cerebral section. I mean, like, and there's there's been twist endings in shitty movies that I've liked. Like, there's a movie called Basic that's pretty boring. Basic? Yeah, it's pretty basic. It's just... That's like the remake of Rashomon from a, like, thematic standpoint, right? Yes, yes, yes. And it's 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 not that shitty, but it's it's a movie where basically, like... Basically. Basic. Like, ba- it's basically. Yeah, it's hard to talk about. Um... <laughs> Basically, the uh, the twist ending is that like all, everything was a test. At the end of the movie, you don't feel like it was a waste of time. At least I don't, because I was like, oh, they set up all these crazy situations, and you know, if someone had died, that would have been part of the test. <laughs> that way, that would have been they wouldn't have made it through the test. So in my head, I'm like, okay, so this wasn't like a contrived set of circumstances to get you to a point. They're like, oh, these people happen to have just made it through, and that's why it's a 90-minute movie and not a 60-minute movie. <laughs> With this, I'm like, we had a nice self-contained story. The guy got caught at the end. It's great. And then, oh, there's another little bit. I can uh, easily yeah. separate that off. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into let's get into some scenes that you guys liked. Um I, I may be taking everyone's favorite scene, but uh, my favorite scene in the movie is the B. Calgary scene. Oh, yeah. Where uh, they're reading kind of his diaries of how – because Caligari was like this 17th century mystic that the other Caligari, uh, the one that we know, kind of found his writings and then kind of became obsessed with creating a zombie that he controlled himself. And there's this scene that kind of like takes place – in his psyche about him like running around and eventually like overcoming to the madness of of giving into the 17th century mystic and doing what his his diary said and there's like all these words that are popping up on the screen that just say be caligari be caligari and he's like in this weird like uh you know fairy tale woods and it's just a it's just a really great creepy scene it accomplishes exactly what it wanted to do in 1920 and it's equally as effective watching it in 2017. Uh, Sam, what do you think of the the sort of wrapping text and him and him devol- delving into his own insanity and being obsessed with this character Caligari? Oh yeah, that was great. And with what you were saying about the subtitles, it's really cool how even just the regular like inner titles they have all this weird stuff going on. Like they're all crooked. Oh yeah. Casting shadows that turn into crosses or abstract shapes. And it's like a scroll, like being rolled. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple scenes like that. Sam confirms some scenes like a scroll being rolled. (laughs) I think it was more like they just couldn't fit it all in front of the camera at once, so they had to make you sit there while they scroll up and show you the rest of it. Yeah. Yo, we're not showing two screens. <laughs> this guy's a New Yorker, not a German. <laughs> well, yeah, he's... We're not showing two screens. <laughs> yeah, they are not showing two screens. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, All yeah. of our German accents are perverts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because they're all of our... Not the people doing them, the accents themselves. Why not both? And all of our Austrian accents are Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> They'll obviously... 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Sam's that. clearly like the boss. <laughs> Righteous, dude. Where were the creepy underlings that have to go and actually kill Indiana Jones? <laughs> While I smoke my While cigar. he takes all the credit. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can't even know how relieved I was that that one thing Indiana Jones wrote. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Peter Lore and M. <laughs> yeah, my favorite scene in this movie is when uh, I stopped it halfway through to watch all of Peter Lore's M. <laughs> my favorite scene in the movie, by far, is the awakening of the somnambulist. And it's very early in the movie, and there's this static shot of his face. And it's um, something I've talked about a lot on the show, is creeping dread is kind of my, my shit. <laughs> um, and this creeping dread of waiting to see if the somnambulist will actually wait up, wake up. And the shot just lasts longer and longer and longer. And I, I, I love the moment that his eyes slowly spring open. And the, the way the scene, uh, the frame is filled, uh, I think it's a sort of yellowish color maybe. It's like a more warm color. And it makes his eyes look almost like red. Um, that's my favorite shot favorite moment in the whole movie is the awakening of the somnambulist for the first time because it makes you scared of him what do you got sam what was your favorite scene? i think my favorite shot is the one of the guy in the prison cell where he's just got all these giant chains all around him and then they i think they like made a cone-shaped set so it's really playing with the perspective and they painted some <laughs> of the shadows onto the walls yeah or the, the other set i love is the town clerk and the police where they're all in these really weird stools where they have to like hunch over to see their desk yeah the town clerk did look like he had a literal stick up his ass actually yeah yeah the town clerk as soon as the town clerk gets murdered you're like nah all right (laughs) he deserved it fair enough he had less heavy dark eye makeup than the rest so i wanted him to go <laughs> <laughs> like a freak didn't uh knock in nosferatu have kind of the same setup too yeah all desks were the same uh, in germany in 1920 <laughs> yeah, basically yeah. you're a german expressionist movie try not to get a desk job <laughs> yeah. Either that or get a really good chiropractor or be the king of the desks <laughs> you're like oh you wanted a you wanted a, a standing desk huh um well yeah i guess you can you can have a a standing desk three feet off of the ground (laughs) the standing desk is over there (laughs) is this your is this your peter laurie german voice you know what i I had something in my mind my voice did something different (laughs) leave it in if you want aaron 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 why are you backing up this dude you're usually so bad at accents you're doing great right now i just i you know i had had something in my mind as a bad accent knocked it out of the park and feel bad about it. I want you to feel great about it. It'll all be okay. Because you did a good job. It'll yeah. all be okay, Peter Lorre. Hi, I'm Peter Lorre, Zam. They're there. They're <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. There, there. <laughs> all right. So let's, let's, let's do some final thoughts. Uh, we spent way too long talking about the twist. <laughs> Um, which I think is a little, a little crazy, but like, yeah, it is, it is how endings work in movies. That's you, it's something that occupies your mind is one of the best designed set movies I've ever seen. The way that characters navigate the scenes are so confident. The scene where the somnambulist, Cesare or Caesar or whatever, uh, I didn't cross that bridge this whole episode miraculously (laughs) until now. Um, he's hugging a wall and he's moving along it sort of in a spider-like fashion. Fashion, uh, just shows oh, you yeah. how much the director and the, the set designer were so confident in what they had built. But in 
this is like characters seem to also navigate the space in a dreamlike manner. And um, yeah, I think if you're interested in any sort of surrealist pictures, um, you should start here. Because even though it has like a pretty literal narrative plot for most of it, the way that it communicates information within the space is, is so unique, and even 100 years later. Yeah, that's perfect. Sam, did you have anything? Yeah, that, that gets at actually what I was thinking of is I, this is kind of what I said when I had to present on this for class, but it does kind of show a different direction the movies could have taken. And I like compared it to Metropolis, which had all these really realistic background paintings and then how every other movie went the Metropolis way. But like there's some alternate universe out there where this is what movies were based on instead of Metropolis or Birth of a Nation or something like that, where you get these really weird, just, I don't know, like, I think movies took the direction of trying to be realistic after this, and this was pointing off in a direction where you don't have to worry about that and where you can do so many other things that, you know, I think most filmmakers just... It never caught up with. Yeah, that's such a good point. The reason why this feels like something out of the 70s or 60s, it almost feels like there was a 40-year pause uh, after everyone was okay talking to Germany again and <laughs> rediscovering their films, and then like they picked it back up. Because those Germans were naughty. They are like the us of 1940s. <laughs> it's so weird how historically it lines up like that. Um, it is weird how the authoritarian, like even now... We have a sort of like, like almost fear of standing up to authoritarians in film. There's like a pretty decent chance that if you're writing a movie and you have a character who like uh, shrugs at authority, some massive population of America will see that character and go like, get a job. Yeah, hippie. <laughs> yeah, you goddamn hippie. Take a bath, hippie. Yeah. <laughs> People should have jobs. I don't know. <laughs> And take baths. That's how the nice free market story. enterprise work. Um, yeah, so my I have I have a one final thought on the movie, and then I just want to mention something about as we kind of wrap up this month. Um, so, so this this movie, I feel like this and Nosferatu are really good like companion pieces because they're both really great movies, and I feel like that if you want to be very reductive, you can almost sum up horror movies into these two categories, mm-hmm. like. And it feels like 90% of – excuse me. I feel like 90% of horror movies took the Nosferatu route where it's uh, it's very scary, It's but it's a straight-ahead monster picture with a very effective monster. And then there's this, which is weird and bizarre. And it's not just the actions taking place on screen that scare you or make you feel dread, but everything like, you know, the way that someone walks on a wall, like Peter mentioned, or the way that sets are designed, everything is meant to make you lose your bearings. And that, that in sometimes is scarier than someone actually physically scaring you. Someone walking up to you and going, boo, is not as scary to me as, hey, did the floor just move a little bit? Are we tilting? Like, that that feeling of throwing you off balance where you're not sure what's going on and you just feel not at home is a very scary feeling. And I feel like the, the, the horror films that went in the Caligari direction are 
some of my favorite movies of all time, the Lynchian stuff, the Cronenbergian stuff, anything that's like weird and hard to pin down, but just makes you feel a certain way just by looking at frames. Um, I love, and that's not to slag on the Nosferatu route. Uh, tons of great movies that went that way. I love, but, but like my heart lies in Caligari, I guess would be a way to put it. Um, and the final thing I'll say about this month is that, you know, I always like watching silent movies. I probably don't seek them out as much as I should. And I really kind of feel energized after this month to to do a lot more of uh, watching silent movies as part of my standard rotation. Uh, I ended up uh, watching, you know, these documentaries on, on some other German silent movies. Ended up adding a lot to my watch queue. Um, even Blind uh, bought a couple that didn't have... Uh, didn't have great transfers because these Kino transfers are so fucking good that I'm like, well, I'll just pay to, to get these because I'm really excited to see these. So I feel like this was probably one of the first months that we've done that I feel has, has added, you know, 40 or 50 movies to my watch list. And I'm really, you know, I could see myself tomorrow watching another German silent horror movie. Um, so this was a really fun month to do and kind of a big change of pace for us. But uh I, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, I did too. I'm glad that we did this because in particular, it helps calibrate you uh, going forward as you view horror movies. And uh, and it's not just it, – it helps you realize that like um, – I think we have this sort of like view that like all movies today are just about like cheap thrills and excitement. And uh, back then, they, they were not immune to those sort of um, – and they were not immune to those sort of thrills either. These, these, this cheap twist feels like something out of a pulp novel. And it makes it kind of fun in its, in its own trashy way. But uh, yeah, it's always good to keep your horror diet and your movie diet diverse. Um, it helps keep things into perspective. It helps make you appreciate why movies... Um, how movies have changed over the years. It helps you appreciate how um, different eras and different sensibilities have affected uh, the environment in which the films were made. This month was uh, a good way to recalibrate as I go back. Like I watched uh, Eyes of My Mother and I loved it. And it was very interesting watching it after something like Haxen. I think it made me appreciate the movie better because I had just watched a silent horror movie that like communicated its ideas visually just as well. And it, it, yeah, give me, it gives you a sense of perspective. Yeah. So yeah, this was a great month, Sam. Thank you so much for, for coming on and joining us for our final episode. Um, you, you were a blast to have on. Uh, hope you'll, hope you'll come back again. Uh, do you have anything to plug before we, we do some, uh, next episode next week stuff yeah i've got to plug a hole in my ceiling that's about it though okay uh <laughs> <laughs> so look out for uh if you're gonna pour some water on sam's yeah. roof uh sam, you better get it done before he does this the water level's been going up in his room as we've been recording oh yeah it's uh it's He's... about neck deep. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was Sam Scott, his last words, uh, <laughs> telling us about this impending drowning. Uh, well, I'll plug Sam Scott. 
Again, check out the uh, the salute. 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 <laughs> salute. We'll link to it. He's got uh, his writing on uh, Scorsese's films and a bunch of other stuff is fantastic. So highly recommend. Gives those. Give some of those old articles some some views as we as we look forward to uh, Casino on out. Yeah, peruse on the salute. Peruse salute. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then we do 90 minutes of word association. <laughs> yeah. All right. Just keep going with it, guys. This is where the magic happens. <laughs> next month, we're not actually going to announce what's going on next month. We know what it is. We have our guest booked. We're really excited about it. Uh, but we're going to use next week's episode, our one-year anniversary episode, uh, to to kind of uh, give you guys – uh, the announcement of of next month. So next week is an episode. It's a surprise episode with a surprise guest. Uh, we're not going to say anything more, and then that episode will be thematically linked to what we're doing. Uh, what we're doing the next month. So we're very excited by it. Uh, but yeah, we don't have much to announce because you're just going to have to tune in, or at least read the title <laughs> in iTunes and go, "Oh, that's what they did." Never mind then. <laughs> Yeah, one year anniversary episode. That's why it's a surprise. We're uh, this is our fiftieth. Next year's our one year. Uh, we already have uh, we have May and April all booked up, all scheduled. Uh, we're really excited about both months, and we're we're batting on around some good ideas for the summer as well, uh, as well as some potentially really exciting. I think we kind of t- discussed it a little bit last week, but some exciting directions for uh, uh our podcasting hopefully network in the near future so a lot more shorts a lot more diverse uh types of episodes and a new website at a minimum at the minimum yeah i meant like shorts because it's going to be warmer like i'm gonna oh, wear yeah. more shorts <laughs> yeah oh yeah a lot more shorts because of the heat um uh, i'm here in california yeah <laughs> i'm gonna set up my first summer here so I'm already wearing shorts. You're wearing shorts right now. I'm wearing shorts right now. You guys want to see? <laughs> yeah. Picture picture me in shorts. Let me ask you something. Do you got the cargo shorts so you can keep your stuff? <laughs> keep all your cargo? Um, no. Yeah, I just moved. I haven't found my cargo shorts. Um, I keep them in a, in a wooden crate that you need to open with a crowbar because uh, I'm an adventurer. And ironically, you kept the crowbar in your cargo shorts. That is such a shame. But the storage, I couldn't pass up the storage. I've always said this. If Indiana Jones didn't need cargo pants, you don't either. <laughs> uh, well, they didn't have cell phones and all the other electronics that you need, so I don't think that's a fair comparison. But anyway. That's uh, true. On a, on a daily grind, I mean, we do way more than an Indiana Jones does in a day. I mean, Indiana Jones had a whip holster and a gun holster. So if you're saying, fine, I won't wear my cargo shorts, I'm just going to walk around with a with a revolver holster and the place to hold my bullets. Fine, Peter. That's a one-to-one comparison. <laughs> and a shirt that says, don't tread on me. Now, protect your rights. Uh, good night. Your whip rights. <laughs> yep. Yeah. In dreams, I walk with you. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. If you want to get in touch with us, please reach out to us at either our website, wltwpodcast.com, or our Facebook group, facebook.com backslash we love to watch. And uh, yeah, reach out to us, give us some feedback, give us some support, uh, suggest movies for the show, all that. We are also available on SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.